Well, on September the 22nd, 1862, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln used this proclamation as a war measure in order to free the slaves in the American South. That proclamation would come to maturity at midnight on January the 1st, 1863. So you can imagine the hopeful anticipation of the tens of thousands of slaves that knew about that measure. It had become known as Freedom's Eve or Watch Night. Slaves uh, gathered together in churches, in homes, in hollows to stare at the clock waiting for it to strike midnight and welcome in their long-awaited freedom. Frederick Douglass, who was in Boston that night on Freedom's Eve, said, quote, We were waiting and listening as for a bolt from the sky, which should rend the fetters of four million slaves. And when the hour came, joy erupted from the mouths of the throngs who had been held in bondage for years. One reporter that was watching a group of these slaves that watched the hour tick said that there was joyful, jubilant, uh, they were jubilant beyond description. He said that they sang and they danced and they feasted. In celebration, decades, centuries even, of indescribable agony and pain and indignity were coming to an end, at least in part. And that birthed, of course, unparalleled joy. And friends, this morning we learned something from that that we will learn in the book of Kings. Namely, that the darker the darkness, the greater the joy of the morning. He had those slaves been living happy. All was well. The Emancipation Proclamation would have given them very little joy. But it was because of the pain of the darkness that led to the immense joy and the light. And so, friends, as it was for them, so it is for us, God's people. Big idea this morning, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. That's what we'll see. And just to kind of review us a little bit, we've been walking through the book of Kings. If you're new this morning, welcome. Glad that you're here. We've been, uh, what we do at our church most of the time is just walk right through the Bible. And so we've been walking right through Kings and we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 11. You can find that on page 317. Uh, Kings is in what we call the Old Testament. It's anticipating the coming of Christ. Uh, The chapters are those big numbers. The numbers, the verses are the little number that you can see there. But last week we saw the reckoning of King Jehu who brought the judgment of God on the house of Ahab just as it was prophesied in great detail. King Joram and Jezebel and Ahab's sons all were taken down in judgment for the ways that they sinned against God and made others to sin against God. There was a lot of judgment last week that we saw in the passage. And we might be led to think that since all of that judgment came that that might then lead Judah into the kind of golden age of Israel. We might be led to believe that since there was so much judgment, that then the Messiah would rise up. But sadly, as we see, it doesn't. If you look again to the last, at the very end of the passage we looked at last week, 2 Kings 10.32, we saw that the Lord had, quote, begun to cut off parts of Israel because of their idolatry. In fact, not only do things get worse after that judgment, they get downright distressing. Take a look at 2 Kings 11, verse 1. It says there, now when Athaliah saw her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal family. Now Athaliah's son that was dead, his name was Ahaziah. 
Ahaziah was king of Judah, the southern kingdom, which was home to the temple, the house of God there in Jerusalem. Ahaziah's dad, Jehoram, married Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, two of the most wicked people in all the Old Testament. And so Athaliah was discipled well in the ways of evil as evidenced by her seizing the opportunity to take the throne of Judah as soon as her son died. And evidently, Athaliah is very successful in taking that throne. She destroys all the royal family, which, of course, is tragic. But for the careful reader, you should be understanding that if that is true, if verse 1 is true of chapter 11, this is not just a problem. This is not just an inconvenience. This is catastrophic. A problem. This is a problem that's so severe that most every citizen of Judah would have been immediately thrown into despair and into confusion. We have to remember, guys, what the book of Kings is doing. You guys remember those three Ps, right? Power, promise, and primacy. The book of Kings is showing us that the Lord is the king. He is the one that has all power. No matter what earthly kings might have, what power they may have, the Lord is over them. We're seeing that. And we're seeing, secondly, that primacy of worship, that the Lord will not share his glory with another. And thirdly, most especially, the book of Kings is tracing the promise of God that he had to King David. To have a throne, sit on a, a, a king to sit on the throne forever. And so the author has been careful to trace that promise to David from Solomon to Rehoboam to Asa, all the way down to King Ahaziah, who, though he was evil, yet he was still in the throne or the line of David. Thus, the catastrophic problem presented to us in that first verse. If Athaliah has done what that verse says, wiped out the royal line, then God's promise failed. God would not have a king in Judah in the line of David, which means God's people then had no hope that they would one day realize that golden age that God had promised them. No Messiah was coming if what verse 1 says is true. There really is no parallel to this, but just for illustration purposes, imagine being one of those slaves on December the 31st, 1862, and hearing that somebody had gotten a hold of Abraham Lincoln and shot him and killed him and then took away the promise of that Emancipation Proclamation. As a slave, how would you think you would have felt knowing that? That all of your prospect of joy and hope and freedom was taken away. And so this promised kingdom of joy possibly taken away from you would have, again, led you into this doubt and dismay. And friends, here in this passage, it's a hundred times worse than that. If Athaliah is successful in eliminating all the potential sons of David, then the prospect of God's light lighting up the world, having that Messiah, that king forever, all of it is over. The God that they believed in was a lie. Or at least, he's not stronger than the powers of darkness. The hopes and the promises of God were all lost. And as bad as things may have been for you as a citizen of Judah, now they just got worse as a result of this. Yet I would hope that those of us that have been following the story in Kings, I would hope that all of us would say, yes, Nathan, but I have learned by now in the book of Kings to know that when things seem like they're terrible, God is beginning to do some of his best work. And you would be right. By now we should come to see some facet of God's faithfulness. We should be anticipating it. And of course we do. Take a look at verse 2. But 
Jehoshaphat, the, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. And so, friends, the, in, in ways that are reminiscent of both Moses and Jesus being rescued from slaughter, Ahaziah's sister, Joash's aunt, perhaps understands the gravity of what is happening and steals her baby nephew away along with his nurse. And where do they eventually hide him? But in the house of the Lord. This is really, really good storytelling that happens to be true, friends. Try and imagine this. Tucked away. This is not the last Jedi in Star Wars, right? This is tucked away in the house of the Lord. In the corner of the temple is a nurse taking care of the last and final seed of David. Tending to him so that the light of God's glory and promise to his people would not be extinguished. And meanwhile, outside of that temple where that little boy is being taken care of, unmitigated terror is going on to that little boy's family. And the nations are plunging deeper into peril as a pagan queen forcibly takes the throne of David. Friends, I cannot emphasize to you how close things got to extinguishing the Davidic covenant in this moment. It was that close. And who was the hero in this story? Once again, a beloved, courageous woman. Jehoshaphat, a woman that, by the way, will never be mentioned again in Scripture. Her heroic act quite literally saves Christmas and Easter and heaven for all of us. I want to be clear, this is not the point of the passage, but friends... You should be taking heart, Christians taking heart in this courageous woman. She probably didn't realize what her courageous faithfulness was doing. She probably didn't realize how her action would lead to a thousand other actions by the hand of God that would lead to the Savior of the world. And so in the same way, beloved, may we be courageously faithful, believing that maybe one phone call, maybe one text message, Maybe one invitation to church or some church event. Maybe one invitation to study the Bible. Maybe one time you go and grab somebody out of a place they should not bring and bring them home. Maybe it won't save the world, but it could save a life. And it could save because of that action, your courageous action on their behalf. Maybe that could lead to successive generations whose lives were different because of your courageous act in Christ. You may not know this, but this is happening to you right now. I have a woman by the name of Anne Gann to thank for doing this. I never met Anne Gann. Anne Gann shared the gospel with Catherine Giles, who shared the gospel with Enoch Arden. And those two got married and had a little boy by the name of Enoch Arden, who married a girl by the name of Donna, who had two boys, one of which was me. Anne Gann shared the gospel with my grandmother, and she believed, told her husband, and she told her son and my mom, and because of all of that, I raised in a Christian home. And now I stand before you presenting that gospel, all because of a woman by the name of Anne Gann, that I'm sure, knowing my grandmother, was not easy to share the gospel with. And yet she did it. 
And everything changed. Successive generations changed. What might happen, beloved Christian, if you were courageous like Jehoshaphat was? Oh, the stories we will tell in heaven. Well, back to the story. Six years, Joash is growing up there in the house of the Lord, secretive, off as the worst is happening around. Meanwhile, again, Athaliah's reign is pummeling Judah on deeper into the darkness. And guys, again, as a believer, we will say, imagine being there in that moment. Try and imagine what it would have been like to be a believer in those six years. It would have been easy in those days to conclude that your faith was futile. That the God of the Bible had lost. That Baal and evil had won. It would have been easy to just sort of give up on the church. To give up on the Bible. To give up on God. Give up on prayer. Give up on trusting God. Just adopt the gods that are around you and start to do what they do. It would have been easy to have done that. But again, we learn the darker the darkness, the brighter the light that is coming. And beloved, it is coming. After darkness, light. Take a look. Verse 4. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them to come him, come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. Now, Jehoiada, we will learn later, is a priest in the house of the Lord. The Karaites think of them sort of like the green berets of the most precious, precious asset of the house of Judah. Right, They're protecting that house of Judah or protecting the house of the Lord. They're guarding that most important asset. So Jehoiada has kept the boy a secret till now. He's going to bring him out and make him king. And so he takes these soldiers before he does to this back room tucked away. You can imagine in the sort of candlelight, there he is, a woman taking care of a little boy. And Jehoiada says to the soldiers, that little boy is the last line of David. We're going to make him king. So they're going to set up things around him to make sure that this coronation service is safe. He sets up a detail to protect the boy. And there we get a bit of a nod to the Davidic covenant in verse 10. Where these soldiers, the Karaites, are given some of the spears and the shields of King David's army. Still there in the house of the Lord. And so everything now is in place. We're going to bring the sun out. The soldiers are going to be protecting this coronation service. Everything was in place for the bright light of God's faithfulness to expose itself once again when everything else seemed lost. A son of David who had been thought to be dead was set to come out as the guard covered anywhere this coronation service might get disrupted. And then we read in verse 12. Then he, that's Jehoiada, the priest, Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. All right, one important piece to not miss here, guys. Did you hear that he not only had a crown, but did you hear that he had the testimony? That's referencing Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, anticipating a moment just like this one. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 20 stipulates that when a king of Israel is coronated, they are to be given a copy of the law so that they might rule in it. And so you have all the pieces. Seven-year-old little boy, king. A son of David coronated with the law of the Lord while the darkness is reigning in the land around Athaliah. After darkness, light has come. 
In the following verses, we read that Athaliah hears the celebration of the of this coronation service of Joash. She kind of hears this, you know, screaming in the distance, and so she heads over to where she hears the noise is going on, which is at the house of the Lord, and she sees Joash there established as the king, and she screams, "Treason!" Christian, never forget that those that are opposed to the rule of the royal son of David. Remember that they will always see things different than us. What we see as light, they see as darkness. What we see as good, they will see as bad. What we see as flourishing, they will see as enslaving because it threatens their rule and authority, just as it does Athalia. We as Christians must be vigilant to call darkness darkness and light light. We must be vigilant to do what love tells us to do. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. We must do, as Isaiah warns us in Isaiah 5, to say, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Because that's what Athalia is doing here. That's what a thousand people around us continue to do, calling faithfulness treason. Friends, they are allegiant to a different king, to a different queen. But we who are in Christ, we are allegiant to Christ as Lord. And what he says is good, we say is good because we love and trust him, don't we? Well, Jehoiada makes it a point to not bring down this Athalia, this wicked queen, as she's there in the house of the Lord, to not bring her down. So they take her out of the temple grounds. We learn in verse 16, she makes her way over to the royal palace, and there she's struck down. Athalia is. After this, we read something significant from Jehoiada in verses 17 to 18. And Jehoiada, it says, made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people, that all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. All right. Big news here, guys. Big news in this transition of power. Joash, later called Joash, a son preserved out of sight of the people, surprisingly rises to the throne of David out of the house of the Lord. And the wicked Athaliah is put down. And then we have a covenant initiated from the priest Jehoiada. And basically what Jehoiada says in light of all these events, he says, all right, let's get back to obeying what God says. Let's get back to doing that. Let's, let's, let's start obeying God's word and get rid of all of this idolatry. And, and the people are swept up in this kind of revival moment such that they begin to go over uh, in, their, in their kind of repentance. And they head over to the temple of Baal and they tear it down. This is what I'm calling demo day, right? They just tear it down. Now, here's the thing. We didn't even know that there was a temple to Baal in Jerusalem. We'd known about the temples in the northern kingdom that had been torn down. But we didn't even know that this one was existing. But there it was. It's, it's existing right there next to the temple. Which tells us just how bad things had gotten in Jerusalem. Not only were the tribes of Israel now divided. Not only was there a wicked queen mother that had seized the throne of David by wiping out the royal line. Or at least so we thought. Not only was idolatry running rampant in the northern tribes. But apparently we learned that the southern tribe also had a temple to Baal built right next to the temple of God. And as if all of that isn't bad enough, next we learn, just in a second, in chapter 12, that the house of of the Lord is in need of repairs. 
So guys, try and again, imagine this moment. Try and imagine this kind of back to the Bible moment, this kind of revivalistic moment. Everything before this looks hopeless. It looks awful. Not only spiritually was it bad, but even physically it looked terrible. I mean, just picture in your biblical imagination, on the one hand, a broken house of the Lord sitting right next to a thriving, newly constructed house of Baal with Athaliah sitting on the throne and the royal line of David thought to be extinguished. Try and imagine that moment living there at that time. But then, poof, flash, out comes the king from the temple. Set to rule in the testimony of the Lord. And down goes Baal's house. Like a thief in the night. When everything seemed lost. Out comes a royal son of David to take the throne out of the house of the Lord. A king that as we read in chapter 12 verse 2. That does what is right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. Because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. And so judgment also comes on the wicked queen mother and the freshly minted house of Baal is in ruins with the people collectively zealous to do as God had told them. Beloved, don't give up on the return of Christ. Don't give up. He told us, Jesus told us that he would be delayed. He told us that he would. After darkness is always light. There's always been the pattern in scripture. That has always been the pattern. In scripture, as you'll see more in a moment. But as the story goes on, it goes on from good to even kind of great. Joash is going to commit to restoring that house of the Lord that is now in disrepair. Which is interesting, right? Tells us a little bit of how much time has passed. Y'all remember way back in the fall when we were celebrating the house of the Lord being constructed and how beautiful it was? Well, now here it is in disrepair. And so what he is doing is now the, the, the temple to Baal has been destroyed and now they're going to kind of uh, refinish the house of the Lord. This is turning into an episode of Fixer Upper, if you've seen that show. You've got Demo Day on the one hand and restoration happening. And all of this is meant to make the reader feel hopeful. And yet, disappointment quickly comes in. Not only because we're told in 2 Kings 12.3 that Jehoash didn't take down the high places, meaning the temple to Baal is torn down, but he doesn't go all the way to leading Judah to completely rid themselves from idolatry. But then more disappointment comes on as we read down about the fixing up of the house of the Lord. It evidently doesn't seem to be much of a priority. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. King Joash tells the priests to take the money that they are receiving from the people for their ministry and to put it towards fixing the temple. All right, so this would be sort of like, all right, Nathan, you and Joey and all the elders, like, take your money and you go build up, you know, the meeting house. And we were like, all right, which is great that we have Chris and Joey, because otherwise me and Chris and Nick wouldn't be doing much, which is apparently what these guys do, because they don't do anything. Take a look at verse six. By, but by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. So it didn't seem to be much of a priority, it seems. It doesn't seem as though they're doing something sinister. It just didn't seem they cared much. Seems like their little revival after the death of Athaliah and the establishment of the king, seems like that revival is short-lived. But, listen guys, they don't give up. Verse 9, we read that the priest Jehoiada gets a trunk, bores a hole in it, and then sits it out in the, in the house of the Lord's temple complex 
so as to be used as a kind of donation center. I'm sure some of you have seen stuff like this in Walmart or Target or something. I can remember years and years ago, this big glass case where you could put change and dollar bills in, right? To I, For me, I remember putting something in there, this is how old I am, to rebuild, to, to build the World War II monument, right? That's what they did. And so they, they built this kind of donation center and they took all the extra money and instead they kind of fired, you know, all the pastors and then they went up and hired Chip Gaines to rebuild the thing. All right. That's what they did. In other words, like the priests, you guys are clearly not doing anything. Let's go take this donation money and give it to some people that know what they're doing. And it works. Encouraging sign. But then we learn in verse 13 that they don't go the extra step of replenishing the gold and silver tools to be used inside of the temple. At least not yet. The book of Chronicles, which parallels some of these stories, tells us later that they will do that. But regardless, the contractors, they roll back the before picture. Y'all, if you've seen this show, Fixer Upper, they kind of roll back the, they got the before picture. They roll back the picture there and see this newly restored Fixer Upper. The temple is in a better condition. But we've been told enough about Joash to know he is not the Messiah. He is not the forever king of David. In verse 17, the suspicion grows even stronger when you read that the wicked king Hazel of Syria comes on the scene. Y'all remember him? Remember when Elisha is crying about how much evil he's going to do? He shows up on the doorstep to Jerusalem. And he's ready to lay the boom to this newly constructed temple. And Jehoash sells out all the gold to him so as to kind of buy him off to attacking Jerusalem. And it works. Off he goes. But we learn in Chronicles, though, that while they don't take Jerusalem down, Hazel dominates the armies and the princes of Judah and sends its spoils back to Syria as a judgment of the Lord on the continued idolatry of the people. In fact, in the book of Chronicles, we learn a little more about Joash, that after Jehoiada dies, remember, he's the kind of guy carrying Joash through all of this. After he dies, he goes on into full worship of idols mode. He kills Jehoiada's son and then leads Israel to worship all these other kinds of idols. But here, back in Kings, it's with sadness and disappointment that we learn in verse 20 that Joash's own servants, take a look, verse 20 of chapter 12, his own servants kill him. Sad, right? What began with so much promise finished with so much disappointment. And that's exactly what the author wants you to feel. He wants you to feel this. He wants us to experience the three main movements in this story, guys. First act, tremendous darkness. Followed second act by great light. Followed by third act, tremendous disappointment. In other words, what the author is trying to get you and I to do is to keep looking for the Messiah. He's not yet come. The author is forcing the eyes of the reader forward. We have to keep looking for the answer to the Davidic covenant to have a people restored. But we have been told enough in this passage, haven't we, to kind of evaluate the different forms and shapes that when that Messiah comes, that we can evaluate him in light of. We've been seeing this week after week through the book of Kings. There's these themes. Remember, I often call the Old Testament like a cake mold, right? It's not the cake, but it has the mold that the cake will fill up. Tells us the kind of shapes and themes to be looking for. Namely, that in this world, things are going to get worse. 
Yet the Lord's purposes are going to keep marching on out of sight from the world. Y'all remember way back in 1 Kings when Elijah goes up on the mountain and he's in the cleft of the rock and the Lord's going to pass by. Remember that? And he's not in the bright and uh, the, the, the earthquake. He's not in the wind. He's not in the fire. But he's in the whisper. So in the book of Kings, we're told when the Messiah comes, we should expect that the power of God's rule and authority would go on out of sight from the world. Whisper in advance while the world shouts and seems to be winning. But we've also seen how with the splitting of Israel and the string of idolatrous kings comes right out of that brokenness and that darkness. The light and the power of Elijah, who in his own ministry, didn't we? We saw Elijah. He kind of goes from mountaintop to valley back up to mountaintop. And again, We see this rising and falling through the themes of kings. The royal line of David seemingly wiped out with a wicked queen mother ruling. When out of the house of the Lord comes a royal king in the line of David that ascends to the throne and restores the temple. All the while he eventually leads us into disappointment back into the valley. Rising and falling and rising and falling and rising and falling. And friends, this is exactly what the Old Testament is doing. Can I just skip a rock across the Bible? The Old Testament to show you, I'll be fast. All the other forms, the shapes, the themes, we see the same thing happening from the very beginning. I could, I could do this all day, but just a quick one, right? Abraham is given a promise of the Lord, a covenant with Abraham that he's going to have a, a child that will have many children, be as many as the stars in the sky. And yet decade after decade goes by, no kids. Her wife, Sarah, is barren. Only to then, at the end of their life, when all else seemed lost, when they're old men and women, they have a son. Light bursts on the scene. Only to have that son be disappointing in many ways. But nevertheless, he gets married. But then they get barren too. She can't have children. Only to then have two children. Bright light. But those two children, Jacob and Esau, fight Terribly with one another. But nevertheless, those two children, Jacob and Esau, the covenant goes through Jacob. And they have many children who have many children who have many children. And finally, there are multitude of stars in the sky, sand on the seashore, bright light. Only to then wake up and read that they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Only to then lead to the bright light where by the blood of a lamb, through the power of God's word, they're delivered from slavery. Bright light. Given the law, God goes with them. It's fantastic, bright light. They go into the land, just as the Lord said, only to then have more idolatry. They begin to take on the worship of those around them. Back in the valley. And yet that's not enough. God sends his prophets and they speak the word. Bright light comes in and they promise a new covenant. And the people, little revivals like we see here today, kind of break out for a time. Light is breaking in, only to then have them fall right back into that idolatry, back into the valley, where eventually both the northern and the southern tribes, we'll see this in Kings, are pushed out of the land like Adam and Eve, exiled, darkness of the greatest sort. But then they come back. The Lord brings them back. Bright light. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall. They celebrate. Everything is great. And then the Old Testament ends with them adopting the worship of the idols around them again. 400 years of silence goes by. 400 years 
between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. God doesn't send any prophets, no words, darkness, 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 400 years of silence, generation after generation wondering if the Lord had forgotten his promise to Abraham, generation after generation if the Lord had forgotten his promise to David, till the bright light of Christ breaks in. Christ comes on the scene just like Joash, bursting out of the temple. A son of Abraham, a son of David. He, Jesus, teaches the authority of the word in the temple. He gives food to those in need. He raises the dead. He forgives sins. He promises to tear down the temple and rebuild the temple, the house of the Lord. Similar to ways that Joash did. He comes into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey like the kings of old, amidst the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. And right when we think we're about to hit the peak of the mountain and heaven is about to invade the earth in total, we go from the highest of highs in the coming of Christ to the lowest of lows. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God is handed over by the Jews themselves. Beaten, battered. Put a crown on his head, but a crown of thorns. And nailed to a tree. Crucified. And they made fun of him. Hail, king of the Jews! Thought he'd lost. He doesn't last a day and he dies. Once again, all of God's promises seem lost. And right when the darkness is maybe darkest, maybe the darkest it's ever been, Light comes three days later. Christ raises from the dead. He bursts forth, right? After darkness, light. Forty days after that, right? Tremendous light shows in heaven as Christ ascends to the true temple and pleads the merits of his blood who then sends the spirit. The spirit comes down upon those believers and they go from being scared kind of jerks to being guys that are now emboldened to love and preach the gospel. And thousands of people come to faith in Christ and they're baptizing them and the church is going on and it's growing. More light after that darkness. Church is planted. But amidst all of this, amidst all this, there's tremendous persecution. And now the Lord is still working in the whisper as the world shouts. The world seems to march on, seems to rule while the work of the kingdom just whispers and The darkness of the world still goes on even while the gospel whispers and advances. And we are back to bring us into 2023 today. We are back waiting for yet another day. We are back waiting for that son of David to come out of his temple again. To once and finally make it all right. When not Joash, but Jesus will come out of the true temple And make this the temple. And friends, I'm here to tell you that when that happens, it will not be followed by any amount of disappointment as it was with Joash. All of the Athaliahs of the world, when Christ returns, as he promised, all of the Athaliahs of the world, those that are not hoping in his return, those who have begun to adopt the worship of the world, the gods that are around him, those that have tried to extinguish his throne, to diminish his word, they will be judged just as she was. 
Christ will return and he will finally have every enemy under his foot. Just as it was prophesied, his church will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, the true and better Joash, will have restored the house of the Lord, which will be again the earth. And God's name will be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' model prayer will become true. The author, friends, of Kings, here in this narrative knows all of these risings and fallings of the storylines. And as he directs us into it, I leave you all with not only a reminder of how God has worked, but again, how he is working now and how he will work. I say to you, beloved Christian family, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you. It's normal. That's normal. Suffering, normal. Persecution, normal. Not fitting in, normal. Do not be surprised if things appear as though God is lost. Do not be surprised if, as we read in the book of Revelation, that the Antichrist is able to inflict tremendous darkness upon the world, just as Athalia did. Do not be surprised at darkness. But as you and I, as we grieve, as we mourn, which we should, the pervasive darkness, we mourn with hope. Because right when all will seem lost, at its worst, Jesus will come out of the temple and he will make all right and he will establish his rule on earth as it is in heaven. You can count on it just as sure as we've learned time and again, the Lord having his way with the kings of Israel. His word is true and it comes true. Trust it, beloved, amidst the darkness. Believe, always believe, beloved, that light is coming no matter how dark it gets. Christ will restore the earth and he will make this his temple. And on that great day, we will not have to worry about, again, any forthcoming disappointments after he returns. Like we do with Joash here. He will be faithful forever because Christ is faithful. He is the one that everything is pointing to. And so the call for us then as Christians is to wait upon him. To wait upon him. To trust him here in the darkness. To trust him even in your own darkness, friends. Knowing that he is in the house of the Lord. And he will soon restore his world, his temple, his rule will be on earth as it is in heaven. There will be no more disappointment. And so, beloved, hold the line. Hold the line. By the grace of God, hold the line. Keep your eyes upon that eastern sky and soon enough, he will come storming out with testimony in his hand and crown upon his head. And he will tear down every temple to false gods. And he will establish his rule here. That day, beloved, that day that the scriptures are anchoring us in, that we, if we are being honest, don't think much about, that day has to inform this day. After darkness, there is always light. God's proven that time and again. He's tried to show you that. This time... When his light comes, we are, that's why they call it the final days. If you're not a Christian, you wonder that why we call these the last days because there's only one chapter left to be written. There's been a thousand written and already become true. One left. And that is when he comes back and all will be right forever. And as for you, dear friend, that are not following Christ, the call for you is to see in this passage what happened to Joash. Call for you, friend, that are not following Christ, is to see what happened to Athalia, to see what happened to Matan. Friend, this is your destiny if you continue to worship at the feet of false gods. No matter how bright their prospects may appear in these days, in the morning the sun will rise and their empires will fade in the light of God's glory and grace. And so the call to you, friend, this morning is to turn from following idols. 
and turn to the risen and reigning Christ, the greater Joash who is coming out of the house of the Lord to reign in the earth. That's the call to you, non-Christian. I will be standing right here. Chris will be back there. If you don't know somebody, just ask more. How can I find Christ? How can I come up under his grace in his rule? Turn from following idols. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his atoning sacrifice for your sin. You can't make yourself right, but he has chosen to go to that cross to enter in the darkness so that he can transfer his light to you by grace through faith. Trust him so that his resurrection will be your resurrection and you will escape the judgment unlike Athaliah, unlike Joash, unlike Matan. That's the call to you, friend. There's hope. There's hope. God will never disappoint. Christ is the faithful king. After darkness, light. We trust him for that. Let's pray together. Lord, we admit that sometimes we're tempted to give up. Either it be darkness in our own lives, whether it be darkness in our own hearts, whether it be darkness in our world. We're tempted to look around and think that you lost, that the gospel's not winning, that insert unnamed religion, that's winning, or insert line of thought, that's winning. We're tempted to God give into that. But thank you for these wonderful testimonies of the saints of old and what you've been doing. You told us that there would be darkness. And we see it in the crucified Christ. And yet you promised eternal light in the resurrection. And so we wait, God. We wait and we pray that Jesus would return soon. We pray that we could enter into the never disappointing rule of Christ as he rules on earth as it is in heaven. Oh God, may we wait and may we not give up hope. May we mourn with those that mourn, weep with those that weep, but may we mourn with hope, knowing a day is coming when all things will be made new and we will have light forever. There will be no night, but only the sun shining brightly. Come soon, God. Help us keep trusting you until we do. Amen.